Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. What does it mean to live a life of the mind? Now, why is it important that we make time in our life to ponder and contemplate the heftier ideas of what it means to be a human? And if that's our desire, how do we go about doing it? Well, my guest today has spent his life pondering and teaching about this very subject. His name is Father James Shaw. He's a Jesuit priest and philosopher and is the professor of political philosophy at the government department at Georgetown University. And Father Shaw has written on a wide variety of topics, but today on the show, we discuss his book, The Life of the Mind, on the joys and travails of thinking where he elucidates on ways of approaching thinking so that it delights and edifies us, and in turn, allows us to edify others. Today on the show, Father Shaw and I discuss what it means to take take part in the great conversation of life, why the life of the mind has some drudgery work in it, and how the intellectual life can be risky sometimes. Uh, We also get into some brass tack suggestions on how to to better live a contemplative life, Uh, some great insights and wisdom from a man who's thought a lot about thinking. And just a heads up about this episode, uh, due to the father's hearing problems, I sent him the questions via email in advance, and he kindly recorded them and his answers and sent them back to me. We've done our best to edit it to give the episode our, our usual flow, but if things don't sound like your typical episode, you know why that that is. And when you're done listening, be sure to check out the show notes when you're done uh, for links to resources we mentioned. You can find that at aom.is slash shawl. Father Shawl, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Why did you decide to become a Jesuit priest after serving in the army? And uh, what have you spent your career and life studying, pondering, and teaching about? The beginning of all great adventures, Chesterton said, is just being born into this world. Much, I am sure, uh, to my parents' surprise, I arrived about a year after their marriage in 1927 in Pocahontas, Iowa, a small farm town in northwest Iowa. My Bohemian mother had 13 brothers and sisters, and my German-Irish father had seven. I was blessed with about 65 cousins plus a sister and two brothers. The best thing that your parents do for you 
is to give you brothers and sisters. My mother, Grace, died in 1937, whereupon my paternal grandmother took over uh, and took care of my sister, brothers, and myself. This enabled our father to keep us together. My father later remarried a widow with two daughters, my own age, while we were living in Knoxville, Iowa, down south of Des Moines. <clears throat> After the three of us, myself and two stepsisters, graduated from high school, our parents, in the summer that World War II ended, moved to San Jose, California. I entered the University of Santa Clara that fall, but after a semester joined the Army for 18 months, after which I returned to Santa Clara for a year, and then I entered the Society of Jesus at Los Gatos in 1984. About the question of why someone becomes a Jesuit, myself included, I can only remark that it is roughly the same question that your brother Harry is asked. Namely, tell me, why did you marry Susan and not someone else? There is a mystery attached to all vocations, including marriage. This fact usually uh, uh, strikes home to a young couple uh, when they first uh, take a look, uh, take a good look at their um, new baby and keep looking at him over the years. When you enter a religious order, it usually has a general plan of studies and preparation for the priesthood, a broad plan in the case of the Jesuits in my time. It lasted about 15 years. It was really an opportunity to spend time on things that you otherwise would uh, have never have known uh, or much thought about. I do not think that everyone should be, join a monastery. Far from it. But I do suspect that it takes most married couples about the same amount of time uh, to have a clear eye on why they are together. I think it is in Plato, as most things are. At a party at my brother's a number of years ago, someone asked me how long I had been in studies. I responded, the usual 15 years. Of this, mind you, after I was 28 or 20 years old, and my brother, no respecter of an elder brother's prerogative, broke into the, into the conversation to remark, Yes, and if he had had any brains, he would have graduated a long time ago. So all that I can say is that once I started, I never looked back. Somehow, for reasons that I could by, not, by no means calculate, it seems that I was doing what I ought to be doing uh, without worrying too much about it. And to this position... I eventually add Chesterton's uh, <clears throat> famous quip that if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Things are worth doing well also, of course. But I never had any doubts uh, that among the sinful and uh, finite creatures that God somehow put in this world, I was right at home.
So you've written extensively about lifelong learning, and not in the sense of learning new practical skills so much, though, though there is a place for that, but learning and pondering upon the great ideas of humanity. But it, it seems many people in our society either don't want to do that or simply have never thought about joining the great conversation. Why do you think that is? And is it that the contemplative life is hard, or is it something else? Ignatius of Loyola was famous for citing the passage, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world only to lose his immortal soul? This passage has become more obscure today when the culture often seems to advise that the only way that one can carry, uh, can save, uh, the only way that one can save his souls or to do anything important is to change the world outside of ourselves. That latter view, that latter view is rather Marxist in flavor, replacing a practice over thought. Before we go out and do something, we ought to know how to do it, and even more importantly, whether it is uh, important or right to do it. We should also know something about what uh, the world is about and our place in it. Learning and pondering the great ideas of humanity, as you put it, uh, is, um, are, not just a, uh, are not just pastimes or curiosities. The famous political philosopher Leo Strauss often remarked that the trouble with great ideas and great books is that they contradict each other. And thus, it is easy for us to end up skeptics if we are not convinced uh, that the purpose of thought and action has to do with truth, both finding it and living it. Philosophy is not just reading or thinking about philosophers. The contemplative life is, is hard in the same sense that playing golf is hard. That is, unless you learn how to play the game pretty well, you will always be a duffer. We do not all have to win the Masters in Atlanta to play golf, but some things need to be learned uh, to be fully enjoyed. Thinking is one of them, is one of these things. And yet, I am Aristotelian enough to recognize that everyone has a mind, and often the formerly learned can end up with silly ideas that any fool can recognize to be silly, or that some famous scholar uh, may be morally dissolute in spite of his learning. But basically, thinking is a lifelong thing. We usually get better at it by recognizing our mistakes and errors. To go back to golf, it and tennis are two sports that it is well to learn uh, while we are young, as unlike football or basketball, they can be played all of our lives, something the existence of Florida proves, I think. 
There will never be a time when thinking and thinking the truth are not important to us. The subtitle of my book, The Classical Mind, is, quote, on knowledge and its pleasures, end of quote. We do not pursue knowledge for its pleasures, but its pleasures, as Aristotle said, follow our knowing. This is the way we are. So how do you bootstrap yourself out of that initial drudgery that you talk about that occurs when you're first setting out on the life of the mind? Is it simply approaching intellectual life like you would with a training regimen for your body? The comparison between training for the mind and for the body is apt. The Greeks used it. St. Paul used it. The brutal fact that if you refuse to push yourself into shape, mental and physical, uh, there will be things you simply cannot do that you might otherwise like to do and be able to do. The world is filled with people uh, with more will and um, discipline who uh, learn and accomplish more because they endured the difficulties of learning or of training. Talent can take us part of the way, but by itself, it is not enough. Incidentally, I had never heard the word bootstrap used as a verb before, but the meaning is clear. There is an initial drudge, as you put it. Any good coach of any sport will be able to tell you uh, many stories of the difficulty to incite the players uh, to train properly. I also think of the stories of violinists or piano players who were made to practice for hours and hours all through their youth, which practice turned out to be the foundation of their ability to play almost effortlessly. Drudgery is connected with most good things. I do not think we ever avoid it. If you look at the number of hours and shots Stephen Curry of the uh, Warriors takes, even when he is in top form, you realize that at some point You have to want to do the necessary uh, uh, preparatory work. The world is filled with young and old men and women who took piano or ballet uh, in their youth uh, but dropped dropped it and never uh, never did much with the instrument or the dance again. Hopefully, they did the work to learn something, uh, they learn to do the work to do something else worth doing. What I want to say, I suppose, is that there is no magic formula which will enable you to bypass the training or replace the desire with some gimmick uh, that will um, do it for you. You must not bypass Uh, the logic course, uh, when you can take it. If you think about it, 
this patient working away at something is what it means to be a human being. There are many things we can um, become, but we can arrive at none of them without wanting to do what is necessary, and yes, and yes, enjoying it once we have figured it out. This is true of being a good farmer as it is of being a good quarterback. And again, some things, many things, are worth doing even if we are not the best in the world in doing them. A mother, Chesterton said, is a um, specialist in... Um, um, She's not a specialist in anything, but a sort of a, a practitioner or a specialist in everything else. And she does not usually have to be the first in what she does in a particular thing. She is the seventh best uh, cook, and the twelfth best sewer, and the fortieth best algebra teacher, all of which, and all the variety of which, means that she must know something of everything. So when does the drudgery turn into a what you call a lightness of thinking? And how do we uh, create a contemplative life in the busyness of our lives? I do not think drudgery ever turns into anything else but what it is. What happens, rather, is that you begin to know how to do things well, or better at least. You begin... <clears throat> to see the truth of things with the help of others. Moreover, one should not think that we ever become something other than we are, finite human beings. Even to want to be something else, like the gods, is not what we really want. As Aristotle implied, no one really wants to be someone else. Even to think that is a good idea, uh, that that is a good idea is an act of pride in the worst sense. As to the second part of your question about creating a contemplative life in the midst of, of the business of our own lives, I think the best thing to do here is to recommend a famous book written back in the 1920s by the French Dominican. A.D. Certeange. It is called The Intellectual Life. It has gone through many editions in many languages. Though written before the computer or even the typewriter, it remains a first-class guide, a first-class guidebook about um, organizing our day with some sense of learning and completion in mind and contemplation. One of the things I like about this book is that it recognizes that most people, uh, most of the time, have to make a living. They have many duties and distractions. Their business plus uh, urgent things of everyday life. Sertayange recommends setting aside habitually a certain amount of time each day for reading or writing. How this fits in with 
the Computer Society, I will leave to your judgment. Another book with a similar approach is the Western writer Louis Lemoore, his book called The Education of a Wandering Man. This book is a record of how Lemoore read his way to an education in American Western lore by, by using his time well. The key points uh, were to want to know and to discipline oneself to make the time. Lemoore listed at the end of each year every book that he had read that year. I like this idea and would uh, uh, and I would include with it significant essays or other things that I have read. So why is studying the liberal, liberal arts so important to a flourishing life? And why should people continue to study them after they're done with the formal education? The word liberal in liberal arts is opposed to the term servile arts, the kind of things that must be done just to keep alive. This point also touches the famous discussion that Joseph Pieper uh, brought us in his famous little essay, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, a book not to be missed. Just reading it is itself a liberal education. Liberal means to be free, but free of what? It means being able to rule oneself uh, as such, to rule, to guide oneself, to be in command of oneself. It means uh, to have acquired the virtues, in other words, so that our emotions and wants do not overwhelm us and take us in a direction that is not worthy of us. It is built on the idea that the basic reason that we do not see the truth of things is that we are busy using our minds to pursue frivolous, dangerous, or unimportant things. The Latin word negotium means business or the lack of leisure, nec otium, the lack of attention to what is open to be known. A liberal education thus means one that is free to see things as they really are and not under the shadow of our passions or wants. So we're free to see what is there. So we become not free to change what is there, but to grant what is there is really there. We read a book for its own sake, for the truth it contains and not just to advance our career or to show off. It is not so much that people should continue with these things after their formal education. It is that formal education itself is a preparation for a life of leisure, of having good taste in things, of being able to understand and judge things unencumbered by our emotions or what Socrates called the unexamined life, the life that is never that has never faced the issue of what it is uh, of what it is with a true insight into one's own given being and what it is for. The end of the quote. Do you have a uh, recommended regimen for the training of the mind and soul? 
mean, is it setting aside certain times for thought, writing, reading? What's involved there? Well, this question goes back to the earlier discussion of the Sertayanj book, The Intellectual Life. We are all different enough uh, to caution us on anything but general rules. Some people work best in the morning, others at night, at night or other times. When I get started on something, I like to finish it. I do not like to parcel it out. A former student of mine is working on a doctorate in philosophy. However, she is now married and slightly delayed with four little girls. Having any time is a blessing for good mothers. I tell her that, A, she will learn more from her children uh, and their care than from any book uh, that any book can teach, and B, time will come when she can continue. Besides, her girls will have a mother who knows a thing or two about metaphysics. A liberal education does not exclude the basic things of life, but enhances them. I often recall a saying I once heard from an American Indian woman when someone was complaining that he had no time. The lady responded wisely, you have all the time that there is. Indeed, each of us, each day, has all the time there is in that day. The philosopher and the detective story writer Ralph McInerney used to write each day two or three pages. I have just finished reading a 50-page essay by my Australian friend Tracy Rowland. I read 10 pages a day for five days. Actually, I have never set aside a specific time for thought, though I have no objection to it if it works for you. I find that thought rather arises from what I am reading or conversing or from some uh, perplexity, like what Pope Francis is about, or whether we have um, um, turned into a democratic tyranny. When it comes to writing, it always strikes me that the writing is the thinking. You never really know what you will write when you begin to write, when you begin to write something. Things gel, and usually you know when what you want to say is uh, in your writing is finished. You see that this is what you want to say. Reading is not lost time, but rather if it is good, if it is good, it is time that is the best. We hear talk of time being empty, and in a way, uh, it is empty if we do not fill it. But we do not do this as if we needed no help or inspiration. If we come to the end of a month or a year and realize that we have not read anything uh, that takes us out of our admitted duties, uh, we need to find places in our days for them. It is amazing what one can do 
with small bits of time. Many modern instruments like the cell phone or the iPad uh, that we carry can carry around uh, can carry around with us whole libraries in our pockets are useful. But there are reading and uh, readings and seeings that can also corrupt us. This is why we need um, uh, uh, self-control, virtue, and a realization that we ourselves need self-discipline. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. 
It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. So you recommend that everyone should amass their own library of good books, and you recommend actual hardbound or paperback books as opposed to digital copies. Why is that? And is there something about the physical book that provides more intellectual heft to the life of the mind? Initially, I would have to warn you that I grew up uh, before these more recent instruments were available to everyone. I'm not a Luddite. I have a computer and a cell phone, uh, which does not prevent me from being bewildered at times by the amount of information now immediately available to me and how to access it. That experience alone, which I recommend being exposed to, that is to say, how to, how to deal with the modern machine is is health is a healthy one. It is important to know what we might uh, know, but uh, probably never um, will know. So that is to say, when you see all of these things that are out there to be known, you realize that it's almost an infinite kind of thing, and many of those things you will never uh, know. This is true of the most learned philosopher or scientist as of the simple uh, denizen of our cities. It is even a Socratic experience to know what we do not know. Yet I still recommend having one's own library of physical books. If you are opening an office or building a house, Provide space for books. Do not swallow the uh, paperless world whole hog. It is an eerie feeling to go into a home or an office in which there are no books, uh, even if there are computers, headphones, TVs, and electronic devices everywhere. But books and their collecting can be just a sort of hobby. See how many uh, first editions I have. Nothing is wrong with collecting books in that matter, but it is not what I mean by a personal library. Also, I am aware that as one gets older, 
the number of really important things he has read and remembers narrows. I am a fan of C.S. Lewis's remark that if you have only read a great book once, you have not read it at all. And as a professor, I am also a fan of his other uh, remark that as years go by, one finds that he has taught, say, the ethics or metaphysics of Aristotle, the Confessions of Augustine, or the novels of Jane Austen 20 or 30 times, and somehow on each time through the book we learn, uh, each time through the book we learn new things and things we never saw before in earlier readings. You use the word intellectual heft, <clears throat> a good word, a certain weightiness. While the electronic books uh, remind us of how fleeting and almost incorporeal books can be, uh, the paper book, the thing we hold in our hands and mark up, gives us a sense of um, concreteness. Now, it is true that a novel of Dickens or Dostoevsky uh, will take us through whole lifetimes, perhaps many generations, of human living in its pages. What counts is the story, however we come to it. We need to remember it, to remember that we, re that we have read it, followed it in our souls, um, and followed in our souls uh, its drama that becomes ours. And so having the book right there that we have read is a constant thing that we can go back to. There is another thing that haunts me. It is the having read many things, but never anything of much importance. I have to be careful here. I once had a wise professor who said that even in reading lousy novels, we will come across incidents and characters that teach us something, something worth knowing. And we cannot forget that if we run across a bad or unjust character, it is a good thing to know about such things. The very purpose of literature is to teach us about um, more lives than our own. We can only live one life, but in literature we can read uh, and live many lives. However varied and complicated our own life may be, the knowledge of other lives will serve to put our experience in its more balanced place. In any case, to go back, the library of books that we have ourselves read and kept should include books we have not yet read, uh, which can be infinite, I know, and a, and a library of books uh, includes this, the things that we will read. I usually mark up my books. The books we have read uh, vividly recall to us our own journey, the account of the mind and souls uh, of others that we have taken into ourselves. 
what we read, no doubt, is not all that we know, nor can it be. We learn things from reality itself, from ordinary living, from conversations, from experiences, from pains. Indeed, the library of our read books must include our judgments on them and their worth. It is not an evil to know what is wrong with something. Something is only evil when we know that it is evil, but declare and decide that it is right to go ahead and do it. So our libraries will, as we get older, contain many things. We need to work at it, keep it in some order, add to it, even show it to others. There is always a certain pleasure and awe in inspecting the library of another person, living or dead. Are there any books you recommend uh, folks start off with? Granted, the vagaries of inflation and the availability of used bookstores. I used to say that with $500 or so, one could have copies of many of the basic things, the collected works of Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, and Cicero. He could have the Bible and Shakespeare. Uh, The cost would mean not going to movies a couple of times or not going to a concert um, or not uh, being um, someplace else that one did not have to go to. Though I have to add that having a library of good books is also a good thing. So we need to have in that library uh, a library of movies, I think. I am also aware that a library is a heavy thing. Books weigh and are costly to ship. It is hard to answer someone who says that I can get all of the things that you recommend and more put and put them right here in this little gadget that I'm carrying around in my hand or pocket. Indeed, someone suggested that I make such an online reading um, uh, apps available. My only uh, response is, uh, go for it. But going back to the question about what books to start with, I want to recount a story that I often tell. When I was 18 in the Army, I had just finished a semester of college at Santa Clara. It was a fleeting time, but I began to get some idea of the vast reaches of what I did not know. The next thing I knew was that I was in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. The war had just ended, so there was really no pressing worry about getting shot. Not a wholly unhealthy worry, um, uh, to be sure. We had a fair amount of free time, as it was called. I thought that I really ought to be reading things. So with this resolve, I went into the Post Library one evening. 
It was a fairly large library designed, I presume, for the use of the troops at the engineering school that I was attending. It was in the old Dewey Decimal, the library was classified in the old Dewey Decimal System. It looked, I looked around at the library and suddenly I realized that I had no idea what to read or where to begin. I recall checking out a novel of Aldous Huxley, whom I had evidently heard of someplace. The novel was called Chrome Yellow. It is too bad that I did not uh, understand the significance of the plot of that book at the time. It is nothing less than a prediction of a world in which the family is replaced by scientific begotten babies, wherein sterile sexual relations have nothing to do with human life uh, that is now controlled by the state uh, planners. Talk about missing the boat at that time. It was this experience that has made me aware over the years of the need to have some idea of what to read and where to begin. My books, Another Sort of Learning and The Student's Guide to Liberal Learning, as well as The Life of the Mind and Docilitas on Teaching and Being Taught, come from this initial experience. Over the years, I give slightly different short lists of books to read. But where to start when it comes down to the wire and someone from some unacknowledged or unknowing background asks me, what do you suggest that I read? To this request, I usually reply, begin with Chesterton's Orthodoxy or E.F. Schumacher's A Guide for the Perplexed or J.M. Bochensky's Philosophy and Introduction or Joseph Pieper and Anthology. When you finish one, go to the next one. They are not very long. Then I advise on finishing to put each book on the shelf of your library next to one another. What happens next is usually a sudden awareness of the excitement of knowing and the desire to know more. The library will grow from this experience. You talk about reading as a contemplative act. How do we turn reading into a contemplative act? That is uh, quite a question. Initially, I would say we don't. Reading is already contemplation. It is the beholding of what is there that is not ourselves. It already takes us out of ourselves. In this sense, it is like conversing with our friends. Aristotle tells us that the highest thing that we can do is to discuss the truth with our friends. In a sense, a book is a written friend. I think of orthodoxy that way and Belloc's The Four Men. Indeed, most of the books I read 
I consider to be become my friends. I think of Robert Sokolowski's The Phenomenology of the Human Person, a book with an excessively heavy title, but probably the best single book in putting everything together that I know. Moreover, it is written with a clarity and incisiveness that make it easy to read. I hesitate to talk about turning reading into contemplation because contemplation always involves knowing someone. The ultimate beholding is not an idea or a, an abstraction, however useful these might be. It is beholding, beholding of a someone. What we want to know of someone is their truth, what they are. The abstractions uh, that we necessarily use in our knowledge, in our knowing, always lead us back to that which is known, its reality, to what is, as I like to uh, like to call it. It was not it was not an accident that Christ said of himself, "I am the truth." He did not say, "I am an idea." Uh, he did not even use Aquinas's remarkable definition of truth as the conformity of mind and reality, not because it was wrong, but because it was right. That is, we are only satisfied when we arrive at the at a personal being that lies at the origin of what we know. David Walsh's new book, The Politics of the Person as the politics of being is about this topic. The French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas talks much about seeking the face of others. The Old and New Testament speak of this looking and seeking the face. When we read, I think, we have the experience of wanting to see the origin of what we read, of the person who wrote it or of the character that is written about. So I would say that reading will take us to contemplation, to the seeking of the face that shows us the grounding of the reality we seek to know uh, the truth about. I have a series of columns in the University Bookman that I entitled on letters and essays. I have in mind here the fact that letters from one person to another, collections of them that we come, come by often long after the writers are dead, bring this wonderful uh, wonderment about the person alive to us uh, to seek the faces of those who correspond with each other. We seek the eyes of the dead who is the source of what we read. The Latin verb contemplare means that there comes a point at which we have arrived. We no longer need to or want to do anything. We have reached a goal, a good. All we want to do is to behold what uh, we will take a lifetime, for, probably, 
an eternity to comprehend in its fullness. Contemplation implies that some things exist, perhaps all things, in a richness that we can never fully exhaust. This experience, I suppose, is the meaning of the classical poems uh, that find eternity in the flower or in Dante's glance at Beatrice. So I think that reading and contemplation are directly related to each other. They lead us back and forth until such times that we no longer merely read the reality, read the reality. Its truth is present there before us in uh, its all of its lightsomeness. Now, throughout your book, Life in the Mind, you say that it, the life in the mind is learning about, quote-unquote, what is. Why is understanding that our minds are separate from the world an important aspect of living the, a contemplative life? The phrase, I suppose, uh, technically comes from Aristotle and Aquinas. In Latin, id quod est, and the verb essay. I do not mean to be uh, esoteric or obscure here. Why we have minds is to see what is not our minds, to see what is there before us, and to see what is. The mind is a power of our soul that is just there as a given um, uh, essential element in what we are. It is what makes us different from the animals and indeed makes us different from the angels in the sense that our mind and bodies are related. We are not minds in the world. We are, we are minds in the world. We're minds and bodies. Our very bodies are instruments of our knowing. As Leon Cass spelled it out in his great book, not to be missed in our libraries, called The Hungry Soul. We are capable of knowing all things, as Aristotle put it. Uh, that indeed is his definition of the mind as such, the power to know all that is. But we have to come to knowing them step by step. We know them after the manner of our minds. When we know them, um, when we know something, it remains what it is. We are the ones that are changed from not knowing uh, uh, this thing to knowing it. In a sense, this capacity is why it is all right to be a human being. That is, we are a, a this person, but what is not us can be known by us. In this sense, we transcend the universe by knowing it. This is what it means to have a special or spiritual power. Its initial awareness comes uh, through the senses. 
the initial awareness of something out there comes through the senses in terms of shapes and colors and motions and relationships to our senses, in other words. All these things can be held together in one mind uh, whereby it can relate things to each other. could only do this if it were a, spirit, or a spiritual power. It can see order, in other words. It can hold many things together at once um, in one relationship or one understanding. Our minds are not exactly separated from the world. It is precisely because they are related to it um, that gives them the opportunity to know in a spiritual way what is physical or material in reality. <clears throat> what it sees is what things about us, about us or about it are. Rabbits and turtles and Joe, rivers, cats, oak trees. It can name them. The world, in other words, needs to be known from inside itself. It needs to be affirmed um, by that thing within it that can also see that it is good. And Father, where can we learn more about your work? Well, it is nice of you to ask about this. Most of the things that I have written are in printed form in the Lowinger uh, Library at Georgetown University in the Special Collections section. Christopher Morrison, or Morrissey, excuse me, Christopher Morrissey in Canada has long and kindly kept a website at www.morecapitalc.com slash shawl. So that website uh, is one that he has kept a record of many of the things that I have done. It contains many and various essays and columns and, uh, and a bibliography. In spite of help, I have never gotten around to setting up a blog with everything in it. My earlier writings were before the computer, but most of the latter things can be found online with a little diligence. Usually, uh, the archives of these following sources will contain the materials that I have written in recent years. So the one at the Catholic Thing, www.thecatholicthing.org, the one at Catholic World Report, www.catholicworld.com, the one at the University Bookman, then the magazine, the printed magazine, Gilbert Magazine contains my, my regular essays on Chesterton. Um, the St. Austin Review had a number of series on the English essays and other essays in there, which is a printed text. Crisis Magazine, which is both printed and now is an online text, will have many essays. And the Homiletic and Pastoral Review will have many longer essays in it. Also, in the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars Quarterly, there are a number of essays, and in the New Oxford Review. 
I have written in various other European and American journals. These are also, there are also many chapters in, in books, um, academic essays, and opinion pieces. My academic field and teaching was in political philosophy. I have written several books in this general area. To name them, uh, Redeeming the Time, another, The Politics of Heaven and Hell, Christian Themes from Classical, Medieval, and Modern Political Thought, then At the Limits of Political Philosophy, uh, the book called Reason, Revelation, and the Foundations of Political Philosophy, which was done by the Louisiana State University Press, The Modern Age, which was done by St. Augustine Press, then there is Political Philosophy and Revelation, a Catholic view, which was done by the Catholic University of America Press. <clears throat> Jacques Maritain, a philosopher in the city, was done by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, Religion, Wealth, and Poverty was done by the Fraser Institute in Canada. Human Dignity and Human Numbers was done by Alva House. And On Christians and Prosperity was done by the Acton Institute. And Roman Catholic Political Philosophy was done by Lexington Books. As you know, I am fond of the short essay. I have several collections of various essays. There is the Shawl on Chesterton, which is done by the Catholic University of America Press, Idols and Rambles, uh, Lighter Christian Essays, which was done by Ignatius Press, The Classical Moment on Knowledge and Its Pleasures, which is done by St. Augustine Press, likewise St. Augustine's did on Taxing Beer, uh, they also did Remembering Belloc. And then there's Unexpected Meditations late in the 20th century, which was done by the Franciscan Herald uh, Press. Several other books need to be mentioned uh, of a more general philosophical and cultural nature. One is The Order of Things, which is done by Ignatius Press, uh, The Mind That is Catholic, which was done by the Catholic University of America Press, The Distinctiveness of Christianity, which was done by Ignatius Press, The Regensburg Lecture, which was done by St. Augustine's Press, The Life of the Mind, which was published by ISI Books, and perhaps my favorite book on the unseriousness of human affairs, teaching, writing, playing, believing, lecturing, philosophizing, singing, dancing, which was done by ISI Books. This latter book has one rival as my favorite. It is my English book, uh, as it was published there uh, in England by uh, St. Paul Editions in Slough, England. It is called The Praise of Sons of Bitches on the Worship of God by Fallen Men. Well, that should be uh, more than enough. Thanks again for the opportunity to reflect on these things um, that I uh, uh, might otherwise uh, not have considered in quite the same way.
My guest today was Father James Shaw. He is the author of the book, of several books, but today we talked about the life of the mind on the joys and travails of thinking, and you can find that on Amazon.com. And uh, he has a Facebook page where he posts links to things he's written about. Uh, just search for him on Facebook, um, Father James Shaw. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Help spread the word about the show. As always, appreciate the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.